0: Okay, if you would, turn to uh, 2 Timothy 2 with me. 2 Timothy 2. This passage, uh, I started studying this actually a couple of years ago, and I wrote it uh, with the goal of teaching it at some point, and I left it on my computer and forgot about it for a couple of years. And then Hunter told me uh, a couple of weeks ago that he wanted me to fill in for him this morning, and I came across it and thought, oh man, I, I never taught this. And so I'm really excited to look at this. I think it's a, it really is a tremendous passage of Scripture. It has a lot of appropriate and practical implication for how we deal with one another and really um, with how we deal with problems, especially in the body, especially amongst believers, from believer to believer. It's in 2 Timothy, which is a pastoral epistle, Uh, So a lot of people avoid it thinking that it's not something that's practical for them because they think that maybe it's for church leaders or that maybe it's for pastors or for elders or deacons, but it's really not. It's something that is very practical for every single person who's a believer. So let's look at it really quickly, and then we'll go over the outline and the introduction. He says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So when you look at this, there's a lot of things that how you interpret it, depending on how you interpret it, carry a lot of implications for what you're going to do with it. Uh, I listened. I was sharing with Sarah and Trevor just a minute ago. I listened to a lot of people teach this. Uh, I've listened to a lot of famous people teach it. Um, some historically accurate and conservative conservative people teach it. I've read a lot of people's commentaries on it, and you don't find a lot of common ground for how people interpret this. Uh, obviously, J.B. I think has done the best of anyone that uh, has taught it, but he taught it on a Sunday morning. Uh, along with the two verses before this, and when you teach that much in that short of a time with that many people, you have to kind of cover the surface, and you can touch some of the in-depth things, but you don't really get to get into dive to dive deep into it. So that's what I want to do this morning. We're just going to take 20 or 30 minutes to look at it, and then we'll break into our groups and talk about it in our grow groups. So um, Paul obviously wrote this wrote this epistle, Second uh, Timothy. They're not epistle; it's a pastoral epistle that he wrote to. Uh, his protege Timothy. Timothy was Paul's understudy. He was. Um, uh, this is Paul's last book of the Bible that he wrote. It's his swan song. He knows he's about to die. He says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. He's, he says, I fought the fight. I've ran the race. I've done it. And so he's taking this opportunity in Second Timothy to give his final words to his protege. To say, hey, I'm leaving. Here's the stuff that you need to know and the stuff that you need to do to carry on. So that's great, because if you think about it, if you had one last chance uh, for your message to perpetuate or to persist after you were gone, what would you say? We get that from Paul in Second Timothy, and we get so many great verses. I've got some of them listed there that are famous, but really the whole book is great. Uh, he, says that, he says to Timothy, You're not, we, we don't have a spirit of timidity, but one of power and love and discipline. He says, the things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful men who are going to be able to teach others also. He tells us about the Word of God. He says that it's all scriptures inspired by God and that it's profitable. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And all of those things have a direct impact on what we're going to talk about today when we talk about dealing with opposition and correcting others in the body. And then, of course, here in 4.2, he says, preach the Word. He says, be ready to preach the word in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. All of those things are going to deal directly with what we're going to talk about today with what the Lord's bondservant's going to do. So the Lord's bondservant, what is it? That's what it starts out with. He says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. Really, the first question that we have to talk about is, what is a bondservant? So what do you think? What's a bondservant? What is it? Yeah, that's it. It's someone who does the will of their master. And we can see directly in this passage that Jesus Christ is the the master, or the Lord's bondservant. So a bondservant, especially in this passage, is dealing with somebody who does the will of Jesus. And really, uh, something else we need to think about is, who, who does that? Who does the will of Jesus? Does that apply to you? Is it like what I thought originally? Is this something that deals just, something that JB and Brian and Brandy and Hunter, should they be the ones dealing with this because they're in positions of authority in the church and they deal with the body? Or is that something that we can deal with? Or that every believer can deal with? And I think it's important that you see that that's for you too. We're going to see how and why that's true. Uh, But how you interpret this passage has implications for how you're going to live your life as a Christian. It's going to have implications for how you go about your life and really how you process things in your life. Uh, We see in bonds that in Scripture, Paul starts out Romans. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He includes Timothy in that in Philippians. He says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. In Colossians, he calls their pastor Epaphras. He says that uh, the people at Colossae got the gospel message from him. He says, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant who is also a servant of Christ on our behalf. All those people are leaders. But then we also get probably what I feel is the best example of a bondservant in Scripture in Philippians in Jesus Christ. And you're told, and I'm told, to have this attitude in us, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, didn't regard his equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and was made in the likeness of men. And then being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." So that's for us, too. We're supposed to have this attitude in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, the person who humbled himself by becoming a man and then giving himself up for us. The point of that is that a bondservant is simply a person who carries out the will of Jesus because Jesus was faithful to carry out perfectly the will of his Father. We're going to see some examples from that here in just a minute. But in the context of this passage in 2 Timothy 2, our master is Jesus Christ, and we're supposed to be an extension of his will. We're supposed to carry out the will of our Lord just as he carried out the will of his Father. So based on what I've said, you answer this question. Does God desire all believers to be bondservants? Yes, he does. In order to be a bondservant, in order to carry out the will of our Father, it's imperative that we understand what that will is. And so let's talk about that. Let's talk about what it means for believers to carry out the will of Jesus. Because here's the truth. All believers have the capacity or the capability to be the Lord's bondservant. Every single one of us. But many believers either ignore or avoid that calling or they've never made a decision to do the will of the Father. That may be you, it may not. Some of you may have said, I'm at a point to where I want my life to count for Christ, and that's good, because we all should. But a lot of people come up with a lot of reasons why we shouldn't, or they know they should, and they just simply avoid it. And that's really what it all comes down to, doing the will of Jesus Christ, because we can't talk about being a bondservant, someone who does the will of their master, without talking about his will for us. If a bondservant is someone who does the will of their master and our goal is to be bondservants, then Jesus' will for our lives should be central to what we do. Our growth as a Christian, our maturity as a Christian, and our lives as Christians all depend on our decision to obey Jesus' will for our life. All of these things are aspects of what, it's the $5 theological words, it's, they're all aspects of sanctification or our progressive growth and maturity to look more like Jesus. Because isn't that his will for us, that we grow and mature? Romans eight twenty nine. it says, for those he predestined, or those he foreknew, he also pr- predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. If you've put your faith in Jesus, that's talking about you. For those who he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed. That's your goal. That is God's will for your life, that you continually grow and mature to look like Jesus Christ. And and I know that we always give this caveat, but let me be clear, we're not talking about eternal life salvation. You don't obtain eternal life because you serve Jesus. You serve Jesus because you've obtained eternal life. It's only logical. Isn't that what he says in Romans 12? He says, I beg you, I urge you by the mercies of God, based on what he's done for you, to offer your lives as a living sacrifice to him, which is your logical service of worship. Some translations say spiritual service, but that that Greek word is logicon. It's logic. Based on what he's done for you, because of what he did, we offer our lives back in service to him. It's only logical that we do that. So no, you don't obtain eternal life because you serve Jesus. But when you place your faith in Christ, you're immediately justified before God. You're declared righteous by God. You've obtained eternal life through him. He gives you a spiritual gift to serve by. He gives you the power. He gives you the Holy Spirit by which to serve. And now we're urged to do just that, to become a bondservant, to grow and mature to the point to where we put our lives and say, I want to do the will of the Father. Just like Jesus did the will of his Father, we want to do the will of Jesus. Now, because all of that happened, because we got all those gifts, uh, we died and rose again with Christ to a new life, and we have the capacity to walk in the newness of life. Whether or not we put our bodies into service as an extension of Jesus' will is wholly dependent upon you. It's wholly dependent upon me. That's the progressive sanctification piece of our Christian life. So to answer all these questions, yes, a believer is capable of being a bondservant. And yes, God wants us to grow spiritually mature so that we can be equipped to do his will. However, that takes growth and maturity. And that comes with time. It comes with committed discipline. It comes with sharpening and refining through things like we do here at Stillwater Bible? Because his will for us encompasses a lot. But in this passage, at least, what is a bondservant to do? And how is he to do it? Let's see it. Let's see some of the characteristics and the methods of the Lord's bondservant. He says that the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all. What does Paul mean by quarrelsome? Quarrelsome. And once we know that, quarrelsome about what exactly? Well, as it often works, Scripture interprets Scripture here. If you go back and look at verse 23, look at what it says. It says, But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. So these are actually two pretty fun words to look at because. The word that is translated foolish there is actually the word that we get moron from. It's morose. He says, don't get involved in moronic arguments or fights. And ignorant is what we think ignorant means. It just means uneducated or uninformed. You don't know if you don't know something, you're ignorant about it. And what Paul says is don't get involved with that. Don't get involved with moronic speculations or ignorant speculations. And so you have to say, okay, then what's a speculation? I know what a moron is and I know what ignorance is, but how can I? What's a speculation? What's he talking about? A speculation is any assertion that is taught or presented to cause debate. I think it's okay, and th- actually, I think it's right to say that Paul could be dealing with the teaching uh, of the people here in verses 16 through 18 who are upsetting people. Uh, by saying that in time things had already started. They were teaching a false end times theology. But I think his intent here also serves a broader purpose as well. As a matter of fact, this is the second time that Paul has written Timothy about this exact thing. Look at what he says in 1 Timothy 1, 3-7. Writing again to Timothy the first time, he says, Hey, as I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, you remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation, there's that word again, rather than the furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But here's the goal, and we're gonna make application of this goal here in our passage as well. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, moronic discussion, uh, ignorant discussion, because they want to be teachers of the law, even, they, even though they don't understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. So we've got the ignorance piece here to where these people are teaching about something they don't even know. And Paul says, don't get involved with that. Don't engage in those quarrels. It's the same thing that we're going to deal, here, deal with here. So think about this in your life. When somebody comes to you and stands in opposition or somebody comes to you and challenges what you believe or what you know to be true, how do you react? How do you deal with that? We're going to see here in just a second that it's natural to want to dominate someone who stands in opposition to you. It's natural for you to want to correct them, especially if they're attacking you, and to show them where they're wrong, to stick it to them in such a way that nobody would challenge you again. That's natural. That's not hard to do. Anybody can do that. Unbelievers do that. Especially if they've directly wronged you. You don't have to have any spiritual maturity to want to defend your pride and to try to stick it to someone so that you can show them how wrong that they are. As a matter of fact, that's exactly how we would expect an unbeliever or an immature believer to behave. We'll see it in a second, but being the Lord's bondservant involves having a humble confidence of your position and your knowledge based on your understanding of God's word. Because it's God's word that's profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training. Moronic and uninformed assertions made by people to start quarrels and mature bond servants are instructed not to engage in these type of foolish or ignorant debates. And I will say that this isn't talking about all debates. There's a time for correction, as we're going to see in these verses. There's a time to have conversations about stuff that matters, but not in these foolish or ignorant ones. One of the beautiful truths in Scripture is you look at this, is, especially as you look at passages like this that have a contrast in them. Anytime that you see the word but in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, there's a contrast. With Paul especially, and I attached a chart if you look at the back page, but in Paul's writing, he gives us a negative command don't do this but do this, the positive command. The negative is always, don't do this, but do this. And in in this one, he says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. That's the negative, don't do that. But be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Okay, so now that we know we should all be bondservants, it's something that we should strive and grow towards. Uh, We know what a bondservant is, and we see here what they're to avoid, these quarrels, but how should they handle these type of situations? Paul gives four interesting characteristics of the type of bondservant that can bring about God's will. And in this case, God's will, the desired result, involves the offender changing their mind about their deficiencies, about, where they, about their shortcomings, about where they're wrong. And the first one of those is to be kind to all. Be kind to all. When you look at that, you say, yeah, that makes sense. I understand what it means to be kind to all. But when you study this, this isn't the type of kindness that you're thinking. Uh, when you think about kindness, you think about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Uh, you think about um, Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. In Colossians 3, he gives a list of the fruit of the Spirit, so those who are chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. It's not that type of kind. Uh, The word for kind here is only used twice in the New Testament. And thank God that he gives the definition of it in 1 Thessalonians. He gives a simile that helps us understand it, or 2 Thessalonians 2.7. He says, we prove to be gentle or kind among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. That's the type of kindness that you're supposed to have as the Lord's bondservant with somebody who stands in opposition to you, with somebody who makes assertions that are maybe hateful or harmful to you about what you believe. And when you think about a nursing mother and a child, that child doesn't know any better. That child is just hungry. It needs nourishment. And if you come down on them in such a way, and this is actually what Paul's talking about in Thessalonians when he's addressing this, he says, I could have asserted my authority over you. He's basically saying, I could have dominated you, but I did it. You didn't know any better. I wanted to take care of you like a nursing mother takes care of their child because I care about you and I love you and you need it. So it should be the same thing with the bondservant of Christ. We should be kind to all. And we're going to see this idea played out here in just a minute. But Paul's going to continue this theme of taking an infant to a child all the way up to maturity. And we're going to see it here in just a second. So, the Lord's bondservant, when they engage with these people, it should be done with a nurturing and gentle concern for the person, not for the sake of proving a point. So often in quarrels or in these type of arguments, we get so focused on making sure that that person knows I'm right and they're wrong. That's not the end goal. That's not what the goal is here. Paul says the goal isn't for that person to feel bad that they were wrong. The goal for this person is that they would come to repentance, that they would change their mind about what they're wrong about, that they would come to the knowledge of the truth. So we'll see that here in just a second. The second characteristic is that they're able to teach. Again, if you don't look at this, you might take this wrong, uh, because I don't believe that the spiritual gift of teaching or the gift of pastor teachers is in view here. So what do you think? According to the context of this passage, what do you think that the ability to, why do you think that the ability to teach is relevant here? These people are making false assertions. They're taking stuff about scripture that's not true. They're saying that the resurrection's already happened. How could you defend that if you didn't know truths from the Bible? How can you uh, have a productive conversation with somebody about what they believe is wrong if you don't know why you believe what you believe or why if you even know what you believe is right? He's going to tell him here in just a few verses in chapter 3 that all Scripture is inspired by God and that it's profitable for four things. Three of those things are very relevant here. For teaching, For reproof, which is showing people where they're wrong, just like you used to proof people's papers in English in elementary school. For correction, that's showing them how to get right. Hey, this is where you're wrong. This is how you get right. And that's really where the Lord's bondservant should live. Hey, you're wrong in this, and that's okay. I understand it. But here's how to get right. This is where you live. This is how we, as Christians, this is how we do things. And it's for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be... Adequate or mature, so that they're equipped for every good work. That's the goal of all of this. We're taking people from infancy to maturity in their faith. First Peter three fifteen says to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to give an account to anyone who asks you to give a, a, a hope for, give an account for the hope that's in you. Sorry, I lost my train of thought there. So we're supposed to be ready to talk to people about why we believe what we believe. When somebody comes to you and says, why do you believe that eternal life is by faith? Where do you take them? When somebody says, you know what, I was reading Acts 2, and it says that forgiveness of sins comes by baptism. How do you handle that? Are you ready to give an account of yourself? Can you give, uh, can you take somebody to Scripture and say, well, you know what, in John 3.16 it says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Did you know that in 1 John five thirteen it says that he's written these things so that you may know to those who believe that you may know right now that you have eternal life. And in John ten it says you can't lose that. He says that my sheep hear my voice and they know me, and and I, I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. They'll never come into condemnation. We're supposed to be ready to give an account for what we believe to people who ask you to. Because these type of conversations matter so the Lord's bondservant should be able to teach. And this isn't just biblical knowledge. Remember, the end goal of this is so that people grasp truth. A skilled bondservant can use biblical reproof and correction to lead someone to the knowledge of the truth. But we see here that that's not the end in and of itself. If someone wrongs another person or they stand in opposition, the goal of Jesus' bondservant shouldn't be to just show them that they're wrong, but to lead them towards the knowledge of the truth. The third characteristic that he gives is that they're patient when wronged. Patient when wronged. This is all one word. This phrase, patient with wrong, is all one word in the Greek. It's very unique because it's the only time that this word's used in Scripture. And really, it means restraint. The Lord's bondservant must be patient when wronged. This is talking about the ability to resist going after somebody when they come after you. When somebody wrongs you, can you be patient? Can you resist the urge or the temptation to go after that person and to fight back or to escalate the argument? Because that's not what the Lord's bondservant is supposed to do. And there's gonna be times, you guys have all told me, You guys all shook your head. Yes, we're all supposed to strive to be a bondservant. There's going to be time in your ministry as a bondservant where people are going to come after you. There's going to be times when people attack you. There's going to be times when people assert things about you that aren't true. Or maybe they are true, and they're just not going about handling it right. There's going to be times when somebody comes at you foolishly or ignorantly. And through the effort and the power of the Holy Spirit, the Lord's bondservant restrains themselves from escalating or engaging in that type of behavior. And I'll just be frank with you. There's a reason that not everybody can be qualified or classified as a bondservant. You're all qualified. But there's a reason that not everybody is classified as a bondservant. Because if it were naturally easy... If it were commonly understood and if it were widely desired, we would all be classified as bondservants of Christ. But we're not. I think that tough skin, thick skin, an eternal perspective, and a good support system are all prerequisites to being a bondservant of Christ Jesus because people are going to come at you. That's what Satan wants. Anytime that he can disrupt unity in the body, he wins. That's what he's getting at at the end of this passage when he says that they're held by Satan captive to do his will. We're going to see it in a little bit, but any time that we stand in opposition to what God wants for us, we're not aligning with his will, we're aligning with Satan's. And you have a choice as a believer about how you're going to interact and engage with one another and whether or not you're going to grow and mature in your Christian life. The fourth quality that he gives is with gentleness. This is the type of gentleness in the fruit of the Spirit. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. And really, this description is just another way of conveying all of the ideas that Paul's brought up to this point. But he does add a little emphasis here. And if you remember, I told you that he moves from infancy on to child-rearing, and he compares it to child-rearing, this is it. Because the word here for correcting is, is interesting because it can be, it can apply different ideas depending on how it's used. Sometimes this word is used for education. When Paul says that I was brought up under Gamaliel, this is what he used. When he said, when, um, um, when Jesus is standing for Pilate, he uses it for discipline. He says, I'm going to punish him and then release him. So it's interesting that depending on how it's used, it can mean education, but it can also mean punishment, like punitive measures, doing something to punish somebody. So if you ever felt like school was punishment, you're probably right. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Really, though, in this context, he's talking about gently coaching them up. And if you think about sports and you think about coaching in general, that's where this can make sense. I'll give you a personal example. In basketball, in high school growing up, I had coaches that would bench me without a word if I were making bad passes or turning the ball over in a game. But I had some coaches that after I would do that, they at a timeout or something, they would sit me down and they diagram the uh, press or the trap that was being used to frustrate me uh, so that I could make better decisions. Sometimes that included verbal instruction and sometimes it was admonishment, chewing me out. Uh, But sometimes it didn't. Both methods... The benching and the instruction were designed to correct my behavior or to correct my actions and to motivate me to be better. And both were effective, by the way. But only one left me believing that the coach cared about me and wanted me to get better. Same thing in football. I had coaches that would grab face masks, yell at you, throw you around, jerk you around. He'd wear me out, get all over me for my mistakes. But I had others that would talk it over with me. Whether we were in line waiting for the next drill or at a timeout or something, he'd come over and tell me how I did wrong, what I did, how to correct it, give me a couple of slaps on the back of the helmet and tell me to get in there and not do it again. Both of them, again, were correcting me, and both were effective in different situations. But guess which one made me want to do the right thing for the right reasons? the Lord's bondservant gently coaches up those who are in opposition. Why? To what end? If perhaps God may grant them repentance, a change of mind that leads to the knowledge of the truth. And so now we're going to move on to the purpose of it all, the desired outcome, the will of God for his bondservants who are dealing with opposition. So let's see these desired results. As bondservants, we've established that we do God's will. We're the tool that he uses. We're supposed to be an extension of his will. He wants us to be faithful to carry out his plan. And in this case, that plan is to use us to help change the minds of brothers and sisters in Christ who are off base. I just want to make a quick point about this. A lot of people teach that this passage is talking about believers dealing with unbelievers. And it works. It certainly can work that way. But in the context, there's more evidence that this is talking about believer-to-believer interaction. So he wants to. to so think about that. There's people in the body of Christ who at some point are going to need to repent. Not for eternal life, but they're going to need to change their mind about what they're doing, or change their mind about what they're teaching, or change their mind about what they believe, because it's wrong, and the Lord's bond servant has a part to play in that. That's what repentance is. It's a change of mind. So sometimes believers who ought to know better fall into strange doctrine. They do. I've seen it happen. Sometimes believers who ought to be better stand in opposition to your ministry. For whatever reason, they've either forgotten or lost sight of the truth. It happens over and over again. But our goal, the goal of a bond servant, isn't to treat those who are in opposition or those who have wronged you like idiots, or to stick it to them by arrogantly asserting our astute knowledge or authority over them. If you're doing it that way, you're doing it wrong. That's what Paul's saying here. But we love them and by gently coaching them up, using the word of God as the basis for our instruction and for our guidance. Uh, perhaps the word which is alive and active and never returns void will bring about a change of mind in that person. About 10 verses ago, Paul commanded Timothy to rightly divide the word. In 2 Timothy 2.15, in about another 16 verses, he's going to say that it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training. And that definitely applies in these situations. And he says to do these things so that he can be, or Timothy can be, an effective bondservant that, that trains people up and that leads them to the knowledge of the truth. And if you don't think about what a bondservant is, if you don't go through the exercise and study that we did at the beginning of this, you miss the juxtaposition in this verse. He offsets the Lord's bondservant who does the will of the Father on one hand. At the end of this passage, he says, because you can be held captive by Satan to do his will. So whose choice is it? It's your choice. It's our choice as Christians. He says they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Come to their senses there means to sober up. It means that at one point they were right, but then they got wrong. And he says, the Lord's bondservant can't be quarrelsome. He can't engage in the stupid stuff, and the moronic stuff, and the ignorant stuff. But he can correct them. He can lead them to the knowledge of the truth. Because as believers, we can get off track. We can, we can succumb to false ideologies. We can de- obey the desire of our own flesh. And we can even sin presumptuously. We can do it on purpose. And really, what an unpleasant thought, by the way. The idea that believers can align with Satan's will, that's an unpleasant thought. And that has bad implications, by the way. If you think, think about that. Think that you can do Satan's will. That stands in opposition to everything that we want. That's a sobering thought in and of itself. But we can and we do. My favorite example of this in Scripture is Peter. When I was little, I didn't understand this. I didn't understand why the Savior, the creator of the universe, could look at his disciple, his leader, his number one guy, and say, get behind me, Satan. That's powerful. How would you feel if if Jesus turned to you and called you Satan? I'd probably start crying. (laughs) And I thought, I don't know why he did that. I thought Peter was the leader. I thought he was the guy that got in the middle of things. I thought he was the type of person that would stand up in front of the Jews and say, you just killed Jesus. You just fulfilled scripture. Why would Jesus call him Satan? It's pretty easy in the context of this verse. Anytime. By the way, what was Peter saying? Why did Jesus say that to him? I think I wrote it in here. Peter's trying to convince him that he doesn't have to go to Jerusalem, that he doesn't have to suffer, and that he doesn't have to die He's the Lord. He's God. He didn't need to do that. Can't you find another way? Peter was standing in opposition to Jesus' Father's will. Jesus had one purpose. That was to come and die for us. And Peter was suggesting that he not do that. And by suggesting that, he was aligning himself with Satan's will, not Jesus's. Jesus actually says that very thing. He says, get behind me, Satan. If you're not setting your mind on God's interests. You're not setting your mind on God's will. You're setting your mind on your own. You just want me around. That's not why I came. That's not why I'm here. We can say the same thing. We should all be growing or at least striving to grow to the point of maturity to where we know why we're here. We know why we're doing what we're doing, and our actions meet our words and our beliefs. That's what uh, separates the Lord's bondservant from an unserving believer. It's somebody who's made a decision in their life to say, I want my life to count for Christ. I'm going to put my members, my body, as instruments of righteousness for Christ into his service and be an extension of his will, because that's Jesus' will for me. I'm told to go and make disciples. I'm told to take the message to an unbelieving world, and then once they've believed, I'm supposed to train and equip them up. We all have a role to play as part of the body. That's God's will for you. So just to summarize, the Lord's bondservant, through caring concern, and through the application of God's word, by resisting the temptation to engage in personal attacks, this is the long-suffering of the patient's, And by gently coaching people up can be an effective tool for changing people's mind when they're in opposition to God's plan and to his will. Because that's what he wants. That's God's will for you. Because the Bible says it is. And there are several implications and applications for this study. Let's look at a couple of them. Look, there's a lot of things that you can apply personally in this. Here's just some general things. Number one, consider your spiritual growth and your maturity. Do a self-assessment. Are you growing in grace and knowledge? Can you call yourself a bond servant? Because there's times I can't, but I need you. I need people in this body who have the gift of exhortation to coach me up when I'm wrong. I need people to encourage me when I'm doing it right. I need somebody with the gift of pastor teacher to teach me so that I can grow in knowledge. I need accountability people like Garrett and people like Hunter and people like Lance, people in my life, uh, there's other people in this room as well who do and have come to me and say, here's some things that I see that you can work on. Here's some things that I see you're doing wrong. And every single one of those people do it the right way. I don't question whether or not they love me. I don't question whether or not they want good for me because what they say to me is 100% grounded in Scripture. Scripture. It's based on the word of God, not based on their feelings or their emotions. So when that stuff comes, I appreciate it, to be honest with you. And I think that all of us should be open to that. There's a lot to be said. Uh, As Dennis Casey always says, leadership gets a lot of ink. There's a lot of writing uh, just in culture, in society, non-biblical, about leadership. But there's not very much about good followership, except for here in the Bible how to be a good follower. Part of that is that you open yourself up to people who you know and trust and love to admonish you, to coach you up gently, to help you see where you're wrong so that you can get it right. That's what I put here. Connect with people who will hold you accountable and people who will sharpen you. There's some people who aren't going to be that person for you because they're not coming at it for the right reasons and they're not coming at it with the right motives. But you know who those people are for you. Get with them. See, gain a humble confidence in your knowledge of God and of your knowledge of the Word. This is hard. We're at a teaching church. We probably have, the, I think we have the best teacher in the United States. And things get made so clearly and so accurately to us that we can put them together and teach them to other people. That feels good, by the way. When you take somebody through a study and they come to you and say, man, I never saw that before. I never heard that. Thanks for showing me that. That feels good. But your response should be, it's it's the Bible. It's not me. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. There's a temptation for when you're teaching somebody to get puffed up or to get arrogant. And we have to avoid that. But we should have a humble confidence that based on what we know from God's word, I can handle the objections I can handle the people who stand in opposition to me. I can handle the people who are saying things that are untrue. And I'm going to look at them as someone uh, who is nursing or somebody who needs to be trained as a child in the way that they should go. Because that's what we're supposed to do as bond servants. We're not supposed to beat them, beat them down with the truth and say, you idiot, you moron. You don't know what the Bible says? Let me show you what I know. If that's the attitude you're doing it from, you're doing it wrong. Two, don't engage in worthless quarrels. He writes it here in 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy. He writes it in 1 Timothy. He says the exact same thing to Titus, by the way. Don't engage in that. There's there's a time and a place to engage in certain things, but don't get involved with the moronic and don't get involved uh, with the ignorant. To what end? What are you doing? You're not going to lead somebody to the knowledge of the truth that way. And then finally, discipline yourself to recognize Satan's snares. This is a big one. You guys know all the, the passage in Hebrew where it talks about milk and solid food. And in there, he says, for everyone who is accustomed or that partakes only of milk, that person is not accustomed to the word of righteousness but solid food is for the mature who for by practice have trained their senses to discern good from evil. That's who we're supposed to be. By practice, through growth, through maturity, you're supposed to train your senses so that you can discern good and evil. That happens through the knowledge of the word and through practice of his word. And that's why I put the best way to do this is through the word of God. Okay, I don't know if it, that went a lot longer than I thought it did, Brian. Do we have time to break up or should we not? All right. I'm sorry. I went a little bit longer than I should have, but um Okay, I'll try. If I don't know, I'll say no. Does anybody have any questions? Anybody have any thoughts or input? Anybody? <laughs> Just joking there. It's <laughs> Ouch. Just conviction. Yeah. Same for me. That's the reason I taught it. The first time I read it, it hit me between the eyes because I'm guilty of all these things. I've been the moron. I've been the uh, ignorant. So I think it's important that we all look at it and study it and get into deep so that that we let that conviction do its thing. Marty. Yep. Yeah, so Marty actually brought out a great point. So I told you that I listened to a lot of people. Russell Moore used social media to make his point when he taught this. Um, A lot of times, he used bumper stickers as well, but bumper stickers and Facebook or social media, a lot of times you engage with these people who don't know your heart. They don't know where you're coming from. Uh, People want to make these ridiculous assertions, and it's just so easy to want to get in there and correct them. And it's not that you can't be successful in doing that. It's just that most people, and by most people I mean like 95% of the people don't do it the right way. And, and nothing happens. You know, Nothing good comes of it. You. To be honest with you, I don't know. Genealogies matter, though, I'll tell you that. Uh, But not, I don't think, the type that he's talking about in 1 Timothy and the type that he's talking about in Titus. He asked the question about genealogies. Uh, I actually was taught to love the genealogies because through those we can track the seed of Christ. In Genesis 3, we know that the Savior is going to be the seed of woman. In Genesis 12, the promise is then narrowed down to Abraham. Then in 2 Samuel 7... It's to David, and then from David down to Luke 1, it's Jesus. And so we can trace that through the linealogies. It's really cool to read the Old Testament that way. If you look at what happens with the tribe of Judah, and you look at how God protects them, and he honors them, and you look at different people who are the seed bearer, or the seed carrier throughout that, you can learn that stuff from genealogies. But I don't know what he's talking about specifically there in 1 Timothy and Titus. That's a JB question probably. Corey. Yeah, I think one thing that stood out to me was uh, whenever, uh, whenever he said, whenever you you're talking about standing in opposition to God's plan, Mm -hmm. like we we align ourselves with Satan's, like that really hit me. Yeah, it's convicting, isn't it? Yeah. so Corey, Corey, just so that everybody can hear, Corey said that it was super convicting for him to think that maybe I've aligned with Satan's will and not in God's will. And what I would say to that is we should all feel convicted about that because every single time that we sin, that's exactly what we're doing. When we succumb to our flesh, we're really saying to ourselves, I'm the God because what I want for myself is more important than what God wants for me. So I'm gonna do. I'm gonna get mine. I'm going to do me because that's what I want and that's what matters. And every single time that you do that and it doesn't align with God's will, it 100% aligns with Satan's. That's scary. That's scary. So the application there, no scripture, because in Hebrews 4.12, everybody knows it's alive and active and sharp thing two-edged sword. The end of that verse to me is the most important part. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. If you want to know what God's will is for you and for your life, go to the Word of God. Go to Scripture because it's going to be what judges your thoughts and intentions. It might not get specific to Corey and say, hey, Corey, you've got this situation coming up in your life. It's not going to spell that out in detail, but the information that you need to be able to make the right decision based on the will of God is in Scripture, 100%. Yeah. Any other input or questions, Adam? Yeah. Of your position Mhm. Yep, you've just synthesized the entire message. That's the whole point. It's exactly right. And if you don't have a humble confidence, you're going to be a lot less effective in what you're trying to do. Nobody wants to listen to a know it all. If you come at something arrogantly, you're losing, you're, losing, you're losing effectiveness throughout that conversation. And because the whole goal, we play to the objective, meaning that we, all the actions that we take. Should have integrity towards that objective, which is for people to change their mind and come to a knowledge of the truth. What else? Thank you, by the way, Adam. Yeah. To God. Man, isn't that powerful? Yeah, that's very powerful. Maybe. So, Corey brought out a great point, and this this could be a whole other lesson, by the way. He said that Jesus' example that's talked about in Philippians, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he was God, he didn't regard his equality with God a thing to be held on to. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, was made in the likeness of men. He left the glories of heaven where he had eternally existed in perfect fellowship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, and he became a dirty, filthy human like you and me. That's Humility. That's humble. He gave it up. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. His own creation. Think about that. Think about something that you make and then putting yourselves under, under that. <laughs> That's humility. Ephesians 5.1 says to be imitators of God's beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you. He's our example in Everything. We're supposed to love people like he loved us, and that was a sacrificial, undeserved, and committed love. And we're supposed to have that same type of thing for other people. And when you're trying to browbeat them with Scripture, you're trying to prove your point instead of to change their mind, That you're doing it wrong. And Jesus is the perfect example of what a bondservant is. He's perfect example because he kept God's will for his life perfectly. He did it. If you look at the Garden of Gethsemane, what a, what a temptation. He's scared. He's struggling. His sweat was like drops of blood. Peter whips out his sword, starts you know, chopping people's ears off, and Jesus is like, "Man, your sword plays not that good." Number one. And number two, if I wanted, I could call legions of angels to fix this problem. But that's not why I'm here. I'm not here to take over the Romans yet. I'm here to die. And to rise again, he's a perfect example of what it is to be a bond servant, one that we should imitate.